Um, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jonah. We're continuing in the series in the book of Jonah, and we're going to be starting with the end of chapter 1 in Jonah 1.17 and going all the way through chapter 2. It is a gripping account, although the narrative slows down, the action slows down. Last week was action-packed. There was a raging storm, and and the seas were tossed to and fro, and and God threw like a spear of wind to to get Jonah back because Jonah had rebelled and disobeyed, and and Jonah had gone away. And so we see this dramatic action in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, things come to a dead stop, no pun intended, when God literally slows Jonah down, and we see that Jonah is in the sea pretty much the entire part of chapter 2. So let's turn your Bibles to Jonah 1.17 through 2.10. This is the Lord's Word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this retelling of the account of Jonah, of how he was drowning. He was in deepest distress. And Lord, how you saved despite him. Lord, you saved and rescued apart from him, outside of Jonah. You you brought your means of salvation. You rescued. And then, Lord, you delivered through trials. God, I pray that each and every one of us would have our faith stirred in you, Lord. I I pray that you would stir up fresh faith in you, God. You You would give us a picture of your grace and your mercy for salvation. God, I pray that you would fill us with wonder, fill us with awe and gratitude, and that you would humble us by your grace. God, I pray for everybody who's here that you would speak to them as I speak this morning. Would your Holy Spirit do the work, go ahead and speak to each and every one of our hearts and minds. Open up our hearts and minds. Help us be attentive to you. God, and I pray for me that I would speak only your words and everything else would fall to the ground. Empower me by your Spirit, Lord. We are weak and needy. We're as weak and needy as Jonah was in the bottom of the ocean. 
And yet, Lord, thank you that you have grace on us, and so we appeal to you for your grace and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a really dramatic account of what happens after Jonah has been thrown overboard. If if you weren't here last week, what happened is Jonah, he had fled from God. God had called out to Jonah to call out against the Ninevites, and Jonah had disobeyed. And so this great storm comes up, and Jonah continually disobeys. He doesn't respond to God. He doesn't respond to God in prayer. A pagan captain comes and says, hey, you should pray. And Jonah doesn't pray. And then he says, hey, I know what's wrong. You should throw me overboard. And even then, Jonah doesn't cry out to God. You're thinking, when's he going to repent? When's he going to cry out to God? When's he going to change? And he doesn't. And so the sailors, begrudgingly, they they try everything they can. They try to save Jonah with their own strength. They can't. They row, they do everything, and they can't save him. Finally, they realize they have to trust God's word, and they throw him overboard. And then now we see this is what happens to Jonah. This is what happened to Jonah after they threw him overboard in the midst of this raging sea. I don't know if you've ever been on the ocean during a storm, but it's, it's a little unnerving. If you've ever been on the ocean during a storm, it's unner- unnerving. And if you've ever seen the movie way, way back when, I was 15 years ago, so-called The Perfect Storm, you get this picture of this, this wave that's taller than the boat, and the boat is going up the side of this wave, and you think all hope is lost. And, and that's kind of the idea that we're supposed to see here is that there's no hope. And then Jonah's thrown overboard, and above the waters... The sea is calm, and yet Jonah sinks, and he's been going in a progression ever since chapter one, since he disobeyed God, he's been going progressively down, 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 and then what we see here is he sinks, and, and, and he crafts this account of his story in the form of a poem. So if you're reading along your Bible and you realize in, in verses two to nine there, it, it's in poetic form. And, and in Hebrew, they would often do that to draw attention to the main emphasis of the book, really, of what's, what they're emphasizing. They want to stand out. And, and so he puts it into poetry. And so Jonah's telling this tale, and so he tells this tale of his own tale, and he, he recounts it in poetic form in verses two through nine. But on bookends of that, in verse 17, verse one, and then verse 10, you see that really God is the one who's framing the entire story here. And then the story reaches a climax in verse 9 where it says salvation. This is the climax of the story. Jonah cries out, the climax of the poem. He cries out and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's really the main idea that we're supposed to see this morning. We're supposed to see the the main idea is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And there's three ways that we see that, that God brings salvation. He saves by his appointment. He saves by appointment, and he saves out of deepest distress. Not only does he appoint a fish, he appoints a fish to save in the deepest distress. He's already prepared a way ahead of time, and then he saves in the midst of deepest distress. And then the last thing we'll see in this picture is that he saves despite our inadequacy, because really, if you're reading this account, hopefully some things stand out to you that, Jonah, wait a minute, there's some things lacking here. There's some things lacking in how you're praying. There's some things lacking here. You're you're expecting to see some things here, and we'll touch on that in a minute. But God saves through his appointment, through deepest distress, and despite our inadequacy. And that's what we're meant to see, is that God God saves by his appointment. Look down in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish. You know, Jonah, he didn't have like a fish whistle. You ever 
You ever have heard of a dog whistle? You can whistle and it's this high-pitched noise and, and the dogs come running. Jonah didn't have a fish whistle. Jonah didn't make this fish come. Jonah didn't have some, some magical ability to, to conjure up a fish, much less a fish at the exact right time. And unlike the movies we see where Jonah jumps off the boat and the fish swallows him right away, that's not what happens. He goes all the way to the bottom. But ahead of time, God has already prepared, he's already appointed or set apart this fish to be the thing, the means of grace that would rescue Jonah. Because God wanted Jonah to see that he saves by appointment. He saves by his grace. Not by man's effort, not by man's choosing, but God chooses. He takes the initiative to save. God appoints salvation for Jonah before he even asks for it. That's really good news for us. That's good news not only for us to know that, that when we were in our greatest need, God had already, before the foundations of the earth were laid, he had already appointed a means of rescue for us. But it's also good for us to know because it helps us. We know Jonah was called to go and preach to the Ninevites. We're called to go and preach. And so Jonah needed to learn the lesson that God saves by appointment. We need to see that too so that it gives us confidence to take God's call. We need to see that God is able to rescue and he's appointed a means of rescue for all of those who we might go to, not just us, but all those we might go to, God may have already appointed them to be saved. And he sends us as a means of salvation. Well, because Jonah had not obeyed God, God hurls this great wind. The mariners couldn't save him no matter what they tried. And yet God appoints this great fish. Now, in in most of the retellings of Jonah, the fish takes up the bulk of the story. And I mentioned last week that this, this tale of Jonah is not about the fish. It's about the God who sends the fish. And here we see that God is actually appointing. It's like God is telling the fish, okay, by the way, fish and, and whatever language fish speak, God's able to communicate with all of his creatures to make all of his creatures do what he wills. And he says, okay, fish, at, at this time, at this place, I'm going to have you go to this place and rescue a person. Or however God communicated that to him. God appointed a means of salvation. What we're meant to see here is that God is great. He's over all creation. He can, he can move all things to rescue people. He, he, can, he can use whatever means necessary to appoint his salvation. And he uses whatever means necessary in my life and in your life to bring, bring salvation to us, to appoint a means of salvation. And we're not meant to try to figure out, okay, what kind of fish is this and um, how, how exactly big would this fish have been? But what we're meant to see is that the miracle here is that it's God who appoints all things. It's God who saves. And really, in, in some way, the fish is, it, it's, a, it's a picture of, of God's rescuing grace. God's rescuing grace. The fish is not punishment. The fish is God's rescuing grace that snatches up Jonah out of the depths I love the way Leslie Allen put it. He says, the fish stands for the amazing grace of Yahweh, which came down to where he was and lifted him up to new life. The fish was God's means of rescue. All, all along in the account of Jonah, we've been seeing his downward progression. As soon as he disobeys God's word, things start to spiral downward. 
And that's true for us as well. As soon as we jettison God's word, things begin to spiral downward. He, he jettisons God's word. He says no to God's command. He goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down to the ship. And then he goes down into the ocean. And we're meant to see this downward progression where no one else can rescue Jonah. No one else can save. The mariners tried. Jonah tried to run from God's presence. He goes down, down, and down. And yet God ordained his salvation in advance. God appointed ahead of time. That's meant to give us confidence. He he appointed salvation for Jonah. And that's a great picture of the fact that even before mankind fell and went down, God had appointed a way in Jesus of rescue. God appoints salvation in advance for you and I. If you have placed your faith in Jesus... You can take great confidence knowing the fact that that it tells us in Ephesians that before the foundations of the earth were laid, he chose us in him. He chose us to be in him. He appointed it. It is no mere accident that you're here today. It's no mere accident that you place your faith in Jesus. It's no mere accident that you know who God is, that you want to follow him. However badly you're doing that, it's no mere accident. God has appointed your salvation. That's meant to give you confidence. It's also meant to see that you can't hope in yourself. All hope is in God. And yet now Jonah is taking solace knowing that God appointed a fish ahead of time. This is the hand of God himself. This wasn't an accident. And we read that here that in, in verse 17, he was in the belly or, or the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, can you imagine that? Anybody here ever fish? Anybody here for fish? Raise your hand if you like to fish or ever been fishing. Maybe you don't like to fish, but you've been fishing, Right? There's a lot of people who don't like to fish, but if you've been fishing, you ever, you ever gutted a fish or, or handled a fish? It sticks with you, right? It doesn't, it doesn't get off of you very easily. Um, last summer, my kids caught fish, and so I dutifully, you know, tried to take care of them and gutted them and prepared them, and, and I, I swear for two days, I felt like I just, I smelled fish every time I put my hands up to my mouth. It was disgusting. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jonah. Jonah was inside the stomach of this giant fish for three days and three nights. God's means of salvation was to be swallowed up and kept in the depths for three days. You know, sometimes the means of salvation does not seem like salvation to us. Sometimes God brings people to the place of absolute and utter desperation. I'd say often God brings people to a place of utter and absolute desperation where things around them stink so that he can bring rescue. His means of salvation was to swallow him up. Now, if you are a good New Testament Bible reader, you know that that three days and three nights, there's some foreshadowing there. And we'll get to that in a little bit later. There's some, there's, there's some foreshadowing of the ultimate means of salvation that, that God would use to rescue mankind. And we're meant to see that. And in light of the New Testament, we're meant to, to read this and say, wait a minute, that three days and three nights, it reminds me of someone else who spent three days and three nights in the belly of Sheol. That Joan refers to the belly of the whale as Sheol. It was, it was hell-like conditions is what he's saying. He didn't actually die and go to hell, but he was saying it was like he was in the belly of Sheol. It was like he was in hell for three days and three nights. In the midst of what I can imagine was the lowest point in his life. You know, it doesn't get much lower than that. Think about it. You're, you're a prophet. You've run from God. You're already disobeying God. You're on the ship. You're in a terrible storm. You get thrown overboard. You think you're about to die. And then you wake up inside of a fish. 
that'd be a rude awakening. And yet in the midst of being trapped inside this great fish, we see that God uses that to, to bring them to a place of desperation. And God saves through deepest distress. He saves through deepest distress. That's the second thing we see, that his grace works in and through our distress. What does Jonah do in verse 1? He, he prays to God in the midst of being in the belly of this whale. He finally prays. This is the first time we see Jonah praying. That should shock the reader. You're thinking, wait a minute, just now? He's just now beginning to pray, and he prays in the belly of the whale. The captain of the ship had called him, out, called him to cry out to God, and he didn't. Even when he could have repented, he didn't call out to God. Even when they were all crying out to their gods, he didn't do that. Even when they were trying to figure out, okay, maybe your God will hear us, and they're kind of setting him up to share the, the good news about God, and yet he doesn't call out. But now he's in the belly of this fish because God needed to put him in the place where he was going to see his need and see his only hope for rescue was God Almighty. Before you can appreciate the grace of God, you have to see the place that you are in. You have to see that you are desperate for God. And, and actually, before you can begin to share the gospel with somebody else and, and, and communicate the grace of God, you have to first understand the grace of God for yourself. And so God is preparing Jonah so he understands the grace of God for himself so he can then take God's grace to other people. But he needs to see that it is totally desperate. He can't save himself. He can't rescue himself. There's no way out. He has to cry out. He's trapped inside the gut of this animal. I think we're meant to see just how gross that is, how, how terrible that is. You know, I don't know how big that stomach was, but it was large enough to fit Jonah. It would have felt like a prison, though. I imagine how desperate it would have felt. If you've ever been inside of a cave, underneath the ground is pitch black. Well, he's inside of a stomach inside the ocean. It's pitch black. It, it, it probably smells so bad that he's on the verge of throwing up the entire time if he's not. He's covered in, the, in his digestive juices of this fish. He's in a place of distress, to say the least. I think that's, a, that's an understatement. I cried out to God in my distress. I would be pretty distressed if I was inside of a large fish. If, if I was in a fish, couldn't see, could barely breathe, and it was closing in around me, and I had digestive juices all over me. You can imagine the desperation and fear that he must have felt when he realized where he was when he finally came to. No light, no food, no fresh water, trapped with little air to breathe, surrounded by utter desperation, no way out. He didn't have a pocket knife back then, you know? He was being digested. And so he says he cries out to the Lord in the midst of distress, out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of hell, the place of exile, the place far away from God's presence. And here's the irony here. You couldn't get any further from God's presence than Sheol or God's manifest presence to bless. So God is everywhere present. In the Bible, we know that God is everywhere pleasant, but he is, he is present in his wrath in Sheol. And he's present to bless in his temple and now his temple is Jesus, but he couldn't have gotten further from God's presence to bless. He couldn't have gotten further from where he could hear God's word. And, and isn't that what he wanted? 
Wasn't Jonah looking for that to begin with, right? Wasn't, wasn't Jonah looking to go from the presence of God? And now we find that God says, okay, go. Fine, you, you wanna go? I'll let you go. And yet in the midst of that, he rescues Jonah in this belly of the whale. So Jonah's not quite seeing clearly even still. Jonah wanted to go away from God's presence, but he's not dead. God rescued him, but he is in despair. And I, and I the, the word for the, the belly there, it's the same word that's used for womb. And he's, he's like in the womb of hell. He's, he's about to give birth to hell. He's, he's, a, he's right in the, the worst place possible. He wanted to go away from God's presence. presence. Now he's arrived. In a sense, he can't feel more separate from God's presence, and so he cries out. He cries out for mercy in the midst of his deepest distress. distress. There's no, no hope for him. And And we see that in the midst, in the midst of the belly of the whale, it says, I cried out in my distress. And look in verse 2, it says, and he answered me. In in the midst of the belly of, of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. God hears the voice of his people in deepest distress. He hears people who cry out to him in their deepest distress. If maybe you're in distress, maybe you're in a place that you feel like, I can't get out of this. There is no way out. There's no rescue. I I don't see any way. Often it's because God's bringing us to that point to cry out to him, to see that he is the God who rescues even when we don't see a way of rescue. He's the God who provides salvation in the midst of distress and he calls us to cry out to him and we see that in the midst of distress, Jonah cries out, God answers, even though he's not immediately delivered. He's not immediately delivered. He's in the belly for three days and three nights. Jonah still needs to learn a lesson here. And we'll see even after this account, Jonah still needs to learn some lessons in chapter three and chapter four. He's in the heart of the deep, in the heart of the seas. He's got no right to ask God to rescue him, though, right? He has has disobeyed God. He's run from God. He said he wanted to go from God's presence. He's rebelled. All the chances God's given to him to respond, to pray, he's not done. He's falling down the depths of the sea. And then then Jonah goes back, and he kind of poetically explains this. This is not chronological, but he says, I was in the belly whale. And now he explains how he got there and what happened leading up to that. We see in verses five, it says, the water's closed in over me to take my life. He's drowning. The deep surrounded me. It's a horrifying picture. If you've ever been in a place where you tried to tread water for a while and you thought, I'm I'm not gonna do well here. Or if you've been in the ocean and a wave goes over you and you start to get sucked out because the the current is taking you out and and you start to panic. If you had one of those moments, Jonah says, the waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And then he gives this vivid imagery. Weeds were wrapped around my head. What's he saying here? He sunk down so low that the weeds from the bottom are beginning to wrap around his head like a grave cloth. And he's wrapped up. He's, he's kind of wrapped up in this grave cloth. And it says at the root of the mountains is where he's at. At the very bottom where the mountains begin, at the bottom of the ocean. He goes, I, I went down to the land and, and, and there was like bars closed behind me. And, and there was a belief that there was the gates of Sheol and the, and the Sheol's gates are closing behind him. That's the kind of imagery he's using. He, 
He's going down into death. And, and death's doors are closing in on him. There's no way out. The bars are closing on him. And it is forever. And then look in verse 6. He says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, why did God rescue Jonah? Verse 5 and 6, it's got nothing to do with, with Jonah repenting. This has everything to do with God's grace. In the midst of his lowest moment, when he deserved to die and he was dying, he was in the midst of his final breath, his foggy thoughts right before his thoughts went out, and God rescues his life from the pit. It reminds me of Psalm 88 when the, when the psalmist uses the same words and, and Jonah is probably here remembering some of these words from the psalmist and we'll see that in, in, verse, in these verses here. He says, You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. In our deepest distress, we need to see that what we deserve is is our wrath. That's what God often is bringing us to a place of, what we deserve is God's wrath. We've earned it. We've, we've earned the wrath of God. His wrath lies heavy on him, and yet in the midst of deserving wrath, he experiences God's rescue, God's grace. In the pit of utmost despair, God brings his life up from corruption. God over heavens, God over the land, God over the sea, he raises Jonah up from the depths. And then when he's about to die, look down at verses 7 and 8. He's about to die. His life is slipping away. He's losing hope. And it's then that in his fleeting final thoughts, he remembers the Lord. He says, and my prayer came to you. And, and here's something really sweet. Jonah was trying to leave God's presence. And he says, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Although I tried to leave your presence... In my deepest distress, I cry out, my prayer came to you, and you heard in your very presence. He's humbled, he's broken and contrite now to some degree. God responds to a humble and broken spirit. Tells us in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Because of his sin, he was cast out of the presence of God, yet God brings him into his presence again. And, and Jonah's confident. He says, but yet, I will come again into your temple. He's confident he's going to come again into God's temple. And he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because he was sinful, God cast him out, yet God is going to bring him back in again. He knows that he's been idolatrous. He knows he's turned away to his own ways. He knows to some degree that he's followed after his own idols, that he sought his own means to an end. He sought to rescue himself, to save himself by his own means. He sought his own comfort, his own satisfaction and peace outside of God. And he says, when, when people try to do that, when you seek satisfaction outside of God, you forsake hope and steadfast love. If you're seeking hope in something else, in some idol, some, something else to satisfy and comfort, you will not find God's steadfast love there. 
I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, an idol is what you, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so the lesson of Jonah is meant to help us see that if we turn after other idols, we won't experience the hope of steadfast love. And yet as we turn away from our own way, going our own way, and wanting to have God do things our way, as Jonah was doing, we'll find hope in his steadfast love. And he gives mercy to all those who hope in his steadfast love. In his final thoughts, he cries out to God. I think we're meant to put ourselves in Jonah's shoes and say, we're the one who refused to obey God. We were the ones who refused and turned aside to our own idols. We, we look to other things for comfort. We look to our own means for comfort and satisfaction. We look to job security or maybe some substance abuse or we look to relationships or whatever it might be for our idols. And he says, if you're hoping in idols, you're not going to find steadfast love. And yet, if you turn away from your idols, you'll find hope in God's steadfast love. What would your last thoughts be if you knew you were about to die and fall into eternity? What would your last words be? If you're slipping to oblivion deep beneath the waves, I think we're meant to put ourselves in Jonah's place and think about what are we really living for? Are we, are we really living for God? Are we hoping in his steadfast love? Well, instead of serving his own idolatrous desires, he vows to give thanks and sacrifice to God. But there's something there that doesn't sit well if you're reading it. You're thinking, wait a minute. He's talking about giving people having idols and not hoping in God's steadfast love. And he says, but I'm, I'm giving thanks and I'm going I'm to make sacrifices and I'm going to make a vow. And there's almost this self-righteousness in the midst of his prayer. I think we're meant to see that there's something deficient in that. There's an, an inadequate response. And, and what I think we're meant to see and notice as well is something else that's shocking is, is Jonah doesn't yet repent of his sins. He doesn't ask forgiveness. And yet in the midst of his inadequacy, God saves despite inadequacy. And that's the, that's the third and final thing we look at is that God saves despite our inadequacy. Jonah is not a great example even here. He's, he's not a good example. Even here, he's crying out to God. And even the way he cries out to God is insufficient. It's inadequate. He never confesses his sins. It's a cautionary tale for us. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He doesn't confess his sins. And that's surprising. He doesn't say, God, I shouldn't have run in the first place. This is all my fault. Please forgive me. I, I deserve your wrath. Would you forgive me? He doesn't do that. And and you see this almost air of self-righteousness and self-confidence even still. He's crying out to God, but he kind of feels like he deserves it. He's broken, yes, but not fully. He doesn't pray for the Ninevites. He's not praying for the sailors that just threw him overboard. He's, he's, he's very self-focused here. There's, there's 23 personal pronouns in this little passage. I, me, he, himself. He's, he's talking about himself. And in, in, in these 11 verses, this is all, he is so focused on himself and his needs. He, he's not asking for forgiveness. He's not praying for other people. And he almost seems to be referencing the sailors when he says, those who regard vain idols. 
as if somehow he's better. And what he doesn't know is that those who had once regarded vain idols, those sailors, they've actually already repented. They've already made sacrifices and, and vows to God, something he's just now coming around to. He's self-righteous still. He says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice what I vowed, I'll pay. And yet at the same time, he sees part of the truth. He sees that the only appropriate response of being aware of his need for God and, and the grace of God is thanksgiving and responding to God in obedience. And I think the vow there is probably relating to his call to go and preach to the Ninevites. We're not exactly sure what that vow is. is I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. But he still, he sees salvation belongs to the Lord. And you think, well, maybe Jonah's confession is right. Maybe he really got it. Maybe he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Great. Now he's going to go to the Ninevites. He's going to be really excited about it. Well, he does go, but he still is not happy about it because he hates that God actually saves the Ninevites. He is okay with God saving him because he's a Jew and he he seems as if he believes that he deserves it. And we'll see in chapter 3 and 4 that he doesn't believe that the Ninevites deserve salvation. So salvation belongs to the Lord as long as somebody who's deserving. It's kind of his inadequate response. But it's still a true acknowledgement that it's not up to Jonah who was saved. God saves whomever he wills. He saves the pagan sailors. He, it's his prerogative. He'll save the Ninevites if he wills. And, and Jonah's acknowledging here, at least he's getting this part, that he can't save himself, that salvation from first to last is only to do with God. There's no way he could have sent this fish himself. There's no way he could rescue himself. And by the way, while he's in this fish, although his life has been spared, he has only so long before he's digested. And he says, but you know what? Salvation belongs to God. Even if his heart's not fully changed, God's merciful to save despite his inadequacy, despite his self-righteousness, despite of a failure to love others. And then God does something. Look in verse 10. He speaks to a fish like you would speak to your dog. You know, when you, if you have a well-trained dog, that is. So, you know, we, we recently watched somebody's dog, and they had been trained to be a companion dog. And I was like, wow, if we're going to get a dog, we're going to get one of those. Because he was already pre-trained. And, and the drug was pre-trained. And so it, God speaks to this fish. And he says, okay, fish, vomit. And the fish does. It says the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited. God spoke to the fish and it swallowed. Now God speaks to the fish and it vomits. Now vomit, whenever you see vomit in the Old Testament, typically it's not a sign of a good thing. It's typically a sign of judgment. And so even in the midst of God rescuing there's something that we're to see. He's vomiting Jonah out on the dry land. There's judgment in the midst of this mercy. And yet when the fish swam to the surface and he throws Jonah up on dry land, what a rescue that must have been as Jonah's gulping fresh air. Probably trying to rinse off in the ocean, trying to get the stink off of him. He must have been elated. I can't imagine the gratitude he must have felt. And you think at the end of this thing that, that Jonah would say, you know what, I'm never going to oppose God again after that. I'm never going to second guess God. I'm never going to question God again, right? You ever been in the place where you think, oh God, if you'll just rescue me, I'll never second guess you again. I'll never question your will. I'll always do exactly what you say. 
And yet we'll see that the book of Jonah actually ends with Jonah questioning God and angry at God. Still not happy that God brings salvation to whomever he wills. Yet God saves the self-righteous. The fact that God saves, it's going to fill Jonah with anger as the book comes to a close, but God still saves Jonah knowing that. He still rescues Jonah, however imperfect and inadequate he is. And we're meant to see that the story of Jonah is an inadequate picture. It's a, it's, it's, it's not, he's a, he's a reluctant prophet. He's He's not a prophet who, who carried the good news of God to the, to the nations as he's supposed to. And if you're reading in the New Testament, Jesus tells us, he explains a little bit about Jonah. And then he explains a little bit about himself. The Pharisees, they, they come to Jesus in Matthew 12 and they said, Jesus, you know, give us a sign. Jesus has done all these great miracles all over the place. And he's done wondrous things. And, and they've already seen the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. All those are signs of the Messiah. And he's raised the dead to life. He's provided bread of life that only God provides manna from heaven. And Jesus has done all these things. And the Pharisees say, well, you know, we want a sure sign so that there's no shadow of a doubt so that it doesn't require any belief. And they ask him for a sign. And so in Matthew 12, 38, the Pharisees go to him and say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What they're asking for is a sign that doesn't require belief, it doesn't require faith. And how does he answer them? He says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Jonah. The story of Jonah points to me. The three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I will spend three days and three nights in the belly of Sheol, and hell as it will, I will go through hell. Jesus didn't actually physically descend into hell, but he, he went through hell on the cross. What he's saying is that just like Jonah, I'm, I'm greater than Jonah. If they repented at the sign of seeing Jonah being brought back to life out of this fish, so should everyone repent at seeing the sign of me being truly brought back to life after dying. And then he says that he's also greater than Solomon. Now it's important to see that as you're reading the, the story of Jonah, that, that Jesus is greater than Jonah, who's a prophet. And then he says he's greater than Solomon, who's the king. And then earlier in chapter 12 of Matthew, he had said already that he's greater, he's greater than the temple. So we see that the foreshadowing, really, Jonah points us to a picture of one who is the perfect prophet, who is the perfect king, who is the perfect temple. He's the presence of God. Jonah was sent to preach repentance to Ninevites. Now Jesus has come preaching a greater repentance to all who are lost. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Jesus was in the earth for three days and three nights. 
Jonah's preaching was, was validated by this ministry. His ministry was validated by the, the, the resurrection, if you will, from the fish. Jesus died and was resurrected, and his ministry is proven that his ministry is true because of his resurrection. Everything that Jonah foreshadowed, Christ is fulfilled. He's the greater prophet, the greater king, the greater temple. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Jesus obeyed the Father's command where Jonah disobeyed the Father's command. Where where Jesus sought to completely do the Father's will, Jonah sought to run from God's will. Where where Jonah was suffering for his own sins, Jesus says, no, I'm going to come and suffer for the sins of all those who don't deserve it. The sun was darkened for Jonah When Jesus died, the sun was darkened because he took on our darkness. He was humiliated and debased before all as he took on our humiliation. The humiliation of Jonah was nothing compared to the humiliation of Jesus on the cross. He was put to shame openly, bearing our shame. Like all of us, like Jonah, had gone astray. We deserve humiliation. We deserve darkness and shame. Yet Jesus, the greater Jonah, took our humiliation, our darkness, our shame on the cross. We're meant to see that we deserve darkness, we deserve humiliation, we deserve shame, and yet Jesus, the greater Jonah, he has taken all those things for us. Jonah should have been forsaken, and yet Jesus was forsaken. He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jonah didn't deserve to have God respond to him. Jesus did deserve God to respond to him, and yet Jesus was forsaken for you and me. Because all of us, in the midst of our distress, we don't deserve for God to answer our call for deliverance. And yet, because Jesus was forsaken for us, we can now have God rescue us in the midst of our deepest distress. Jonah was spit up from his watery tomb. Now Jesus has rose victorious from the grave. He conquered death completely. In being overwhelmed by this flood of darkness and separation and sin and rot and decay, we're meant to see ourselves in Jonah. We're meant to see that that's who we once were. We were dead in our sins. And yet God made us alive. He rescued us. He appointed us. He made us even able to cry out to begin with. And he saves us in the midst of our distress. And he, and he brings mercifully salvation. And by faith in Jesus, we can be raised to new life again. By faith in Christ, we put ourselves in the place of Jonah and say, you know what? We were dead and buried in sin with Christ. And yet now, in Christ, we've been made alive in him. I want to go ahead and ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to pass out communion. I thought, what greater way can we commemorate the account of Jonah by remembering the ultimate Jonah who came to rescue us out of our deepest distress, out of our deepest trials, out of our suffering? You can go ahead and pass it out. It's okay. And I want to share a couple questions for you as the, the elements are passing by you. And I would invite you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that we would invite you to participate together with us. If you are not a believer, just go ahead and let those pass. But there's three questions from an old catechism 
We don't do catechisms a lot in church, but there's an old catechism. It's the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's three questions that are very helpful for us in helping to apply this passage of Jonah to our hearts. You see, Jonah was suffering. He suffered. And yet the ultimate sufferer was Jesus who suffered in Jonah's place and suffered in our place. We're we're meant to cry out to Jesus, the one who ultimately suffered for us, who bore the wrath of God fully, even more than what Jonah bore. Jesus bore the full, unmitigated wrath of God. And we're meant to, to cry out to the one who can save us from the wrath because he bore the wrath of God. We're meant to cry out in the midst of suffering to the one who bore all of our suffering. There's question 37 from the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, what do you understand by the word suffered? I think we have this for you up there. The answer is that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Because he suffered in our place, we have God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. We're meant to see our desperate need for God in the story of Jonah. We're meant to see that We had to have God appoint a means of rescue or there would be no rescue for us. We're meant to have immense gratitude in response. We're meant to see that even then, God enables us to cry out, but God must rescue, he must save, he must deliver. We deserve all the wrath that Jonah experienced and more. We deserve suffering and distress, and yet Jesus took on all of our distress, all of our suffering, so that we might gain God's grace, his righteousness, his eternal life. Question 44, why does the creed add, he descended to hell? It says, the answer, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. That's what I want us to remember today. If you'll you'll take the the cracker here it represents the body of Jesus. And if you look at it, it's broken. It's in a little piece here. Jesus' body was broken for us. We deserve to be torn to pieces. We deserve to be broken. We deserve wrath. We deserve to be separate from God. We deserve punishment and suffering. And yet Jesus took our place, and that's what we're eating, that's what we're remembering, that's what we're placing our hope, our faith in, is that Jesus took our place. He appointed, God appointed a means of rescue in Jesus, and because he appointed Jesus to take our place, we have hope. So let's eat the bread together, putting our hope in his sacrifice for us anew. Question 45 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it goes on to say, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? It says, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. 
so that he might make a share in the righteousness he's obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power too, we are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. I want you to see that because Jesus fully paid for my sins, for your sins, for for all the sins of those who put their faith in him, because Jesus has paid for our sins, there is no more wrath to be poured out. All the wrath that we deserve has been poured out on Jesus. And in his blood, we have new life. As we put ourselves in him, we share not only in his death, but we share in his resurrection. As as you drink this, you don't just share in the fact that he died for your sins, you share in in the lifeblood of Jesus. You put your hope in his blood, in his life, for your life. Let's drink this together. As you drink it, put your hope and faith in the fact that by his power, we are already raised to a new life. God has commanded us to be raised to new life, and nothing can stop that command. God commanded us to be raised to new life, and nothing can stop that command. You may not feel like you have new life, but if you place your hope and your faith in Jesus, you've been brought out of the belly of Sheol, and you've brought to new life, and he's washed you with his, with his blood. He's made you clean. And it's a pledge of our, our resurrection as well. He's resurrected, and now because our life is hidden in him, we too will one day be fully resurrected. We can turn to Jesus knowing he suffered the ultimate despair so that we can come freely into his presence, never to be separated again. Because he's taken away all of our sins, we can come into God's presence freely. He's overcome the chaos of the waters of this life. Now we can experience the overwhelming flood of his grace instead. Amen? Let's pray and I'll go ahead and the band come up and we'll sing together. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy that saved us, that rescued us, that you appointed our salvation in the midst of our deepest